0: And I invite you to take your copy of Scripture again and turn to Genesis chapter 50. And uh, if you're using one of the black Bibles that's provided in one of the chairs there around you, you'll find our passage on page 43 and 44. 43 and 44. Genesis chapter 50. And uh, I'm actually going to... Clark read the chapter in its entirety for us, and then I'm going to read again for us just verses 15 to 21. So Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. This is God's Word. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Amen. We've been studying the life of Joseph over the last several weeks, and this morning brings us to the conclusion of our series and Joseph's life has had many ups and downs, twists and turns. We know at the age of 17, Joseph was the beloved and favored son of his father. But then in a moment, he was betrayed and sold into slavery. It wasn't long after that that he was falsely accused, he was imprisoned, he was forgotten. And he suffered for many years in this situation. But then, again, it was in a moment that things turned for Joseph. And Joseph is released from prison and then exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, second in command over all of Egypt. And the story of Joseph begs this question, why do things happen the way they do? Why all these ups and downs in Joseph's life? Why all these twists and turns Furthermore, what are the cause of the events that we observe in life? What, What is the cause of the different experiences that we have in our own personal lives? We all actually have ways of trying to make sense of these realities, ways of trying to make sense of the various events that we observe in life or various experiences that we have in life. And however you try to make sense of these things has significant implications for how you think about life and how you manage life and how you respond to life and whether or not you are able to respond to the various trials and difficulties and hardships of life in a way that is healthy and good and fruitful. People have proposed a number of different philosophies or ideas about how to make sense of these things. Some people would say, well, all things are determined. That's how we should really make sense of the events that we observe in life and the experiences that we have in life. All things are determined by an impersonal force. This is a very common notion today, that all things happen by an impersonal, evolutionary, biological force that is simply moving everything forward. And so even our decisions as people, as as human beings, are really irrelevant. Our wills are irrelevant, because even the decisions we make are not really personal decisions so much as it is just a response of chemical reactions that are firing off in our brains. Everything's determined by an impersonal force. Other people would say, oh no, that's not really the way that we should think about life and experiences and events. Rather, what really is determinative, what's the the final uh, factor in the way that we experience life and the events that occur in life is is free will. We've been given free will, and, and, and really what results. What, what what brings about certain events and, and 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 situations is is the will of man. The will of man is ultimately determinative in the experiences we have and the events we observe in history. Maybe throw some chance in there, but human will is ultimately determinative. The Bible actually presents a very different perspective, though. And we actually see it here in our passage this morning. We find it right here in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says this to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So Joseph looks back over all of the experiences of his life, all the twists and turns, all the ups and downs, and he summarizes it all in this one statement. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Notice Joseph's perception of reality. Joseph acknowledges here that people, humanity, make real decisions that have real consequences for which we are responsible. And at the same time, there is a God who is absolutely, finally, decisively in control of all things. Joseph says, As for you, you meant it for evil. Notice the fact that God is in control and that God's purposes and plans are always being carried out does not negate human responsibility. Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil and it really was evil. And you will be held responsible for that. But Joseph goes on to say, God meant it for good. The fact that humans make real decisions that have real consequences in no way undermines God's absolute, total, and complete sovereignty. There's a theological term for this actually in Christian theology, the term is concurrence. The idea is that these two realities, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, concur with one another. They are not at odds. They do not contradict one another. And you might say, well, how does all this play out? Well, it's a mystery to us, right? We we, we can't figure it all out, finally. But the Bible consistently and repeatedly presents this idea to us that God is absolutely sovereign. And man makes real choices and is genuinely responsible. This, in fact, is not only shown in the story of Joseph, but we see it over and over again in various accounts in Scripture. And we especially see it in the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we see a parallel because Jesus, you know, Joseph was, was betrayed by his brothers. In a similar fashion, Jesus was betrayed by his disciples. In particular, was betrayed by Judas. And on that night when Jesus was to be betrayed by Judas, in Luke chapter 22, verse 22, Jesus said this, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Okay? So what is Jesus saying there? It's been determined from beforehand. God has purposed it, that I will be betrayed by Judas. Then he goes on to say in the very next statement, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Do you see it? God has determined it, he has purposed it that that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas and at the same time, woe to Judas for what he will do because the choice that he makes to betray Jesus is a real choice and has real consequences. This is the idea of concurrence. So how how do we make sense of the world? And more to the point, let me say it this way. Not only how do we make sense of the world in terms of how we're to think about the various events that we observe and the experiences that we have in life, but how do we, when we face trials and hardships and difficulties and uncertainties, how do we respond in such a way that we are faithful and that we love and that we forgive And that we sacrifice for the sake of others. And that we bless others even as we face trials and hardships. How do we, say it this way, how do we respond to trials and hardship like Joseph did and like Jesus did? Well, one thing that's critical if we are to respond like Joseph did and Jesus did is we need to have the theology of Joseph and we need to have the theology of Jesus. We need to understand that, yes, people make real decisions that have real consequences and superseding it all and overseeing it all is a God who is completely, totally, decisively, finally in control of all things and His purposes and plans are always being accomplished. And He's good. He's good and He can be trusted. Some people have referred to this as a big God theology, and that's what we see Joseph has here in these verses, a big God theology. I want us to spend the rest of our time considering, just from our passage here, four benefits of Joseph's big God theology, four benefits of Joseph's big God theology. The four are as follows, humility, faith, godly initiative, and comfort. Now, there's more that we could point out, but these are four that we see in these immediate verses. The first benefit of Joseph's big God theology that we see in our passage is humility. Humility. Notice as Joseph speaks to his brothers in chapter 50, verse 19, his brothers are coming to him and they're pleading for Joseph's mercy. And Joseph responds in chapter 50, verse 19, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of Of God. Now, at this point in the story of Joseph's life and the narrative here in Genesis, if anyone might be tempted to be prideful, it would be Joseph. We learn back in Genesis chapter 41 that when Joseph interpreted pharaoh's dream and told pharaoh that what pharaoh's dream meant was that there would be seven years of plenty and then those seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of want we are told that immediately pharaoh exalts joseph in chapter 41 verse 43 it says that pharaoh made joseph ride in his second chariot and the people called out before him bow the knee Thus Pharaoh set Joseph over all the land of Egypt. So here is Joseph. He's been a a slave. He's been a prisoner for years. And in a moment, he is exalted to ride beside Pharaoh, paraded through the streets, and it is shouted, bow the knee, bow the knee, and Egyptians are bowing before him. Not only that, but we're told in Genesis chapter 45, verse 8, that Joseph became as a father to Pharaoh and became lord over Pharaoh's house and was ruler over all the land of Egypt. In addition, not only was was Joseph exalted to this high place in Egypt where he ruled over all of the land, but we're told in chapter 50 verse 19 in our text this morning that even his brothers now, you remember Joseph had been given this dream so many years before when he was 17 years old that his brothers one day would come and bow before him. His older brothers, his brothers who had, who had betrayed him and thrown him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And that dream has now been fulfilled. And his brothers now, his older brothers who had betrayed him are bowing before him prostrate. And so here is Joseph in this unique position of power, unique position of authority over Egypt and over his family. We could say that in Egypt, humanly speaking, Joseph was kind of in the place of God. Joseph called the shots. Joseph made the decisions. And yet Joseph says here, am I in the place of God. Even with all the great power that Joseph enjoyed, Joseph had a theology, a big God theology that allowed him to retain humility. Joseph knew, even as second-in-command over all of Egypt, that there were realms of authority, there were realms of power, there were realms of judgment that were far beyond him, that you might say were above his pay grade. Even as second-in-command over all of Egypt. And Joseph refused to seek to usurp the throne, to ascend the throne, and to take the place of God. It's like David in Psalm 13. 131 Verse 1 When David says, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Do you sense how freeing that is? You sense in David's words how freeing that is? There are things that are beyond me, and I'm just not, I'm just not going to try to ascend the throne. And take those things on, but I will acknowledge my rightful position before a sovereign God. David expresses that. Joseph expresses that. And you sense here this sense of freedom in Joseph's life as a result. Joseph refuses to ascend the throne and adjudicate this case with his brothers. To figure it all out. To sort it all out. To determine what consequences the brothers should receive and what consequences should be withheld. No, Joseph says, listen, I understand my responsibility in this. My responsibility is to forgive you. I have forgiven you. Now the rest I give over into the hands of God. Am I in the place of God? No, I am not. And there was a freedom in that. And listen, my friends, as we consider the various events that take place in our lives, as we consider the various hardships and trials that we might face in our lives, as we consider the various evils or injustices that might be committed against us, if we feel the responsibility to analyze it all and adjudicate it all and figure it out and get all the details just right, you know what? We will be overwhelmed and discouraged because that's not our responsibility right rather a big god theology allows us to recognize that there are things beyond us and those things we can commit into the hands of god in humility and in that there's freedom there's freedom The second benefit of Joseph's big God theology, the first is humility. The second is faith. The second is faith. Look there in chapter 50, verse 20, and we read these words. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. Here it is. But God meant it for good. Now that is a statement of faith. Even though Joseph had lost so many years of his life, Even though Joseph could have had so many regrets, Joseph looks back over his life and says, God meant it for good. It's remarkable to see Joseph's repeated expressions of faith all throughout this story, even in the face of persistent difficulty. And you know, if Joseph had credited his circumstances and trials and difficulty all to the evil intentions of men there's a good chance Joseph would have been bitter. Or, if Joseph had finally credited his circumstances to the impersonal forces of evolution and biology, there's a good chance that he would have despaired and had no hope. But rather, Joseph finally credits all that takes place in his life to God. To an all-wise, all-powerful, all-good, all-loving God. And this is the source of his faith and trust. Now again, it's not that the brothers' actions were irrelevant or did not have consequences. But what Joseph understands is that their actions were not finally decisive in determining what took place in his life. But rather, God's purpose was finally decisive. So if you go back actually to chapter 45, which we were looking at last week, Joseph makes this point again and again and again. So in chapter 45, verse 5, Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve life. In chapter 45, verse 7, Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. Verse 8, now here he even says it more With more emphasis and clarity. Joseph says, so it was not you speaking to the brothers. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Now of course Joseph recognized that humanly speaking, yes it was the brothers that had led Joseph into Egypt. It was the brothers' choice to betray him. It was the brothers' choice to sell him into slavery. It was the brothers' decisions that had resulted in Joseph landing in Egypt. But what Joseph is saying here, the point that he, and he recognizes that, he says that in other parts of the narrative, but the point that Joseph wants the brothers to understand here is that their choices were not finally decisive and ultimate, that ultimately it was God who purposed that Joseph be there. And if it had not been for Joseph's per- if it had not been for God's purpose, it doesn't matter what the brothers would have done, Joseph would not have ended up in Egypt. What a statement of faith. Joseph says, "Listen, I was betrayed, I was sold, I was falsely accused, I was imprisoned, I was forgotten. But finally, I understand, finally, this was God's purpose for my life. His big God theology gave him faith when everything seemed to be falling apart. You might say, well, that's that's kind of hard to swallow. It's kind of hard to accept. I can see that at one level. But consider the alternative. Consider the alternative. My friends, there is no comfort in believing That what happened in Joseph's life and him ending up in Egypt was finally determined by the actions of his brothers. Is there any comfort in that? That we are at the mercy, ultimately, ultimately at the end of the day, at the mercy of the whims of evil and wicked men? There's no comfort in that. Neither is there comfort in thinking that all of this happened by some impersonal, evolutionary, biological force that is void of love and affection and morality and good intention, and we're just being propelled by this impersonal force. There's no comfort in that. Rather, the only solid and sure hope is, is that although I don't understand where I am, and although I might not understand why I am here, I believe I am here because there is a God who is sovereign and good and loving and far more wise than I am, and He has purposes and intentions that I can't imagine. In that, there is comfort. And this was the conviction that sustained and energized Joseph's life through all his trials and sufferings. And my friends, it will energize and sustain your own faith as well. Third, the third benefit. The first is humility. The second is faith. The third benefit of Joseph's big God theology is godly initiative. Godly initiative. Look there in chapter 50 verse 20. Joseph says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here it is. Here's God's good intention. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, how were... so, So there were, because Joseph landed in Egypt, because God used him the way that he did there were hundreds of thousands of people whose lives were saved and preserved. And we might say, how were their lives preserved? How were they kept alive? Well, ultimately we know that their preservation was due to God and His actions. But at the same time, we recognize that at a human level, they were preserved and they were kept alive by the initiative and the action of Joseph. And what I want you to see here, and it's clear from this story, is that big God theology is never an excuse in Joseph's life for indifference, or for apathy, or for passivity. It is never... Joseph's big God theology is not fatalism. Joseph does not say, well, all is determined... Therefore, I have no responsibility to act or to plan or to seek to do good, because what God has determined will happen. And my actions don't matter, and my actions have no consequences. That's not Joseph's theology. In fact, what we see in the passage is that when Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh... And he says, listen, there's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of want. Immediately following that, Joseph presents Pharaoh with a plan. Joseph says, so listen, Pharaoh, this is what you should do. You should appoint a wise man who's capable. And what that person should do is that for the seven years of plenty, they should hold back 20% of all that is produced. And they should store it up so that when the seven years of famine and want come, there will be plenty for those who are in need. And, And it's interesting because at least the way that the narrator records it, Pharaoh didn't ask for Joseph's plan. Pharaoh didn't appoint Joseph to be the lead on a famine research group. No, Joseph just presented the plan. He offered the plan. So Joseph does not believe. Joseph says, listen, God is sovereign. God has purposed this. God has determined that this is what God's going to do. But Joseph then does not say, therefore, let's just sit back and see what happens. Right? Right? God has determined it. There's going to be seven years of plenty and then let's hope for the best when there's seven years of want. No, that's not what Joseph does. Listen, we have to understand that when we understand Christian theology, it's not only enough to understand the doctrine or theology itself, But we must not then just come up with our own implications using our own minds, but the implications that we come up with must also come from the Bible and arrive from the Bible. The implication here for big God theology is not passivity. It's not indifference. It's not planning. It's not taking action. Rather, it's stepping forward in bold, courageous faith and confidence, acting, believing. God is in control. Let's go for this thing. Let's do this. Let's plan. Let's act because God can do anything he pleases and he may use us to preserve and save the lives of many. I love, you might say, well, what implications does this have for us? Well, it has many implications for us as Christians. It has many implications for us in doing ministry here at Crawford Avenue. I love the story of the Apostle Paul when he was in Corinth and Paul was facing various obstacles and opposition and persecution. And in Acts chapter 18 verses 8 through 11, the Lord comes to Paul at night and the Lord speaks to the Apostle Paul in a vision and this is what he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. Here it is. For I have many in this city who are my people. So here's what the Lord says to Paul. Listen, there are people who are opposing you, Paul. I want you to understand something. I have a people in this city. I have purpose to save them and I will save them. They are mine. Now, Now the implication of that is not then So Paul, you don't need to do anything. Actually, you can close up shop and move on to the next city. No, that's not the implication. The Lord says to Paul, I have people in this city. They are mine. I have purpose to save them. I will save them. Therefore, Paul, keep on preaching. Keep on speaking, keep on sacrificing, keep on praying, keep on giving, keep on raising up leaders, keep on seeking to build the church, because I will use you to accomplish my purpose to save my people in Corinth. You see, the reality of big God theology, if, if it leads to passivity in our lives, if it leads to indifference, then we have a misunderstanding of what the Bible teaches on this. We definitely don't have Joseph's theology or Jesus's theology or Paul's theology. Rather, big God theology should lead to courageous, bold, sacrificial, godly initiative, planning, and action. Believing that God is absolutely, decisively, entirely in control of all things. And therefore, he is able to accomplish all that he would purpose through us. The fourth benefit. The first is humility. The second is faith. The third is godly initiative. The fourth is comfort. Look there in chapter 50, verse uh, 21. And Joseph says to his brothers, So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And here finally we just see that it is a comfort to know that we are not God. Isn't that a comfort? It is a comfort and blessing to know that we are not God, we are not in the place of God, and we do not have to take on God's responsibilities. And Joseph in this reality is comforted. Joseph is essentially saying to his brothers, listen, I have resigned this to God. I'm trusting his purpose. I'm trusting his plan. Therefore, I am comforted. And as a result, he is able to comfort his brothers. Joseph is essentially saying to his brothers, listen, because of who God is, because I know who God is, I am not afraid. And you don't have to be either. The Apostle Paul says something similar when he speaks to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. He says to the church in Corinth, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So Paul says, listen, our affliction is... And our comfort has a purpose. God is doing something when we are afflicted. God is doing something when we are comforted. God is in control of this. And he is comforting us or he is afflicting us for your sake so that through us you might experience the comfort and salvation of God. And listen, when we deny big God theology in our lives, when we refuse to be comforted by the reality of who God is, not only do we rob ourselves of comfort, but we actually rob others of the comfort that they could experience through us. God intends to comfort us through the reality of who He is so that we might be a comfort for others. I said when we started that this is not the only occasion in Scripture when we see that God works out evil events and intentions for good. We see it throughout Scripture and we see it supremely in the life of Jesus. In fact, in the book of Acts, we see this articulated very clearly. Peter One of the apostles is preaching early on in the book of Acts and he's preaching to a large gathering of Jews in Jerusalem. And listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see it there? That's concurrence. God purposed and planned that Jesus would be crucified. He determined it. And in the same sentence, Peter says to the Jews gathered in Jerusalem, and you did it, and you will be held accountable. Or, in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, when the early church in Jerusalem is praying... After they've been persecuted, they pray to God and they say, "For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, here it is to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place." You see what they're saying? They said the actions of Herod, the actions of Pilate, the action of the Gentiles when they betrayed Jesus and falsely accused Him and condemned Him and crucified Him, they were evil actions. They will be held responsible for those actions and it was all according to God's ultimate plan and purpose that He had determined from ages ago. And why would God determine such a thing? Why would God purpose Such a thing. Well, what they meant for evil against Jesus, God meant for good to bring about that many should be saved. It's the same exact principle in the story of Joseph. But only this time, it would not be hundreds of thousands of people being saved from famine. But it would be a multitude that no one could count from every tribe and tongue and language and nation who would be eternally saved and in the presence of God forever. When Jesus was being crucified on a cross, no one, no one could imagine that there could be any good in this. What possibly could God be up to that the perfect, blameless Son of God would be crucified by wicked, evil men? And yet in this, God was working a glory and a good that we could never imagine. And my friends, if God is able to do such a glorious and good work through the death of His Son... Don't you think He could take the mess of your life and my life? Don't you think He could take the evil intentions that have been directed towards you, the injustices that you have faced, the wrongs that have been committed against you? Don't you think He could take that and work something good and glorious for His great namesake? Of course He could. And the more that we trust that He can... And that he will, the more free we will be. The more full of faith we will be. The more courageous we will be. The more willing we will be to take godly initiative. The more we will be a blessing and a comfort to others. Oh my friends, how you consider, how you consider how god works in this world to bring about events how you experience things in your own life how you consider these things how you frame them in your mind how you think about them has huge implications for how you do life and whether when it comes to the hardships and trials and difficulties of life you will be found faithful and able to forgive and loving and hopeful and a blessing to others. May we embrace the big God theology of Joseph and of Jesus for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our own lives don't make sense so many times as our perspective is so narrow and limited. And so, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the life and the story of Joseph. We thank You for the redemption and salvation that You won for us in Your Son, Jesus. And we thank You for how these truths in Your Word reveal to us that You are a God worthy, fully worthy of our trust and confidence. Father, help us, Lord, to lean into you, to trust you, to rest in you and your power and your sovereignty and your glory and your might when life does not make sense. May we have confidence, Lord, that you are able to take the brokenness of our lives, even the evil that we face in this world, and work it for unimaginable good. And Lord, we pray that as we rest in that, as we trust in that, that it would free us, it would liberate us for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.